my last lecture, I described the scene on the banks of the Ilyssus when Socrates and Phaedrus sat together to discuss love. Two thousand years later, Raja Ramananda and Chaitanya sat together on the banks of the Godavari, and they too talked about human and divine love. I think it makes a very pleasant parallel. The two ancient Greek philosophers on the side of the river and then the two comparatively modern Indian philosophers on the bank of their river. And their theme was what has been called the domestic love of God, which means making him a member of your own household and thinking of him in terms of the emotions which bind families together. The Raja, possessed by the spirit of Chaitanya, did the talking, and the two men went together spiritually into the, as they say, into the heart of Brindavan, the region of love, where the central figure is Sri Krishna, the god of love, the essence of all that is beautiful and good. The Raja first explained that God may be attained by the love which a devoted servant bears to his master or a dutiful child to his parents. But is that, asked Chaitanya, the highest kind of love? The Raja answered, no, a higher kind of love is that which a brother bears to a brother, or a friend feels for a friend, as Balaram regarded Sri Krishna. Chaitanya expressed his delight at this, but pressed for a still more powerful form of love, and the Raja replied, there is the feeling which a parent bears for his children. God should be worshipped with the love which Nanda and Yashoda bore for Sri Krishna. And he went on to say that even higher was married love, and that God should be loved as Rukmini loved Sri Krishna. And we'll see that that isn't the whole story, but the idea of this domesticization of God is a good introduction to the theme of family love. Vipin Chandra Pal says that as we are domestic and social beings here, realizing ourselves in an organized society, so stands the Lord in an organized spiritual society of his own, composed of the endless multiplied forms of his prakriti. And the exquisite romance of love and service which we taste here in our earthly life has its prototype in the love play in his own being. Now, in all human societies, the family is the primary unit of love and tenderness. It is true that the great prophets of love have sometimes said strange things about it, and there's been a tendency in most of the great religions to regard married life as somehow inferior to celibacy. Some of the sayings of Jesus, for example, are a little puzzling, as when he declared that he'd come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and that a man's foes will be those of his own household. This and other sayings, however, are probably comparative, meaning that if a man would be a disciple, he must have exclusive devotion to his cause and the personality of its leader. We must remember, too, that Jesus expected the end of the world to come very soon. And so family life became insignificant in view of the tremendous catastrophe that was believed to be imminent. At the same time, however, Jesus loved children, tended marriage parties, and cured Peter's mother-in-law of a disease. 
St. Paul, who was a bachelor, doesn't seem to have thought very highly of marriage either. He wished that all men could be single like himself and advised those who had wives to live as though they had none. The motive for this was also probably eschatological. And this seems also to have been the motive of Gandhiji's comparative indifference or lack of enthusiasm for the marriage state. With those who want to perform national service, he said, or to have a glimpse of the real religious life and must lead a celibate existence, whether married or unmarried. I do not think that in our conception of marriage, our lust should enter. Swami Vivekananda, too, says some very strange things about marriage. The love for our children and our wives is mere animal love. The love which is perfectly unselfish is the one love, and that is of God. No one in this world can really love anything but God. Man finds out that human love is all hollow. The wife says she loves her husband and kisses him. But as soon as he dies, the first thing she thinks about is the bank account and what she shall do the next day. The husband loves the wife, but when she becomes sick and loses her beauty or becomes haggard or makes a mistake, he ceases to care for her. All the love in the world is hypocrisy and hollowness. At the same time, the great religions lay a great deal of stress on the importance of the stability of the family. And they really can't have it both ways. If marriage is a lower type of life, then we can't respect it to the same degree. And I think myself that it is essential that we should recognize marriage and family life as what it is, the most perfect practical expression of human love. When a man is together with his wife, the longing of the eternal hills blows round them. I don't believe for a moment that all worldly love is hypocrisy and hollowness. The importance of the family to children is seen by contrast in such books as Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or Orwell's 1984. In the first, the family is eliminated altogether and the result is that children grow up to be entirely selfish, pleasure-seeking people whose brittle, superficial lives are devoid of meaning. In 1984, the family does continue, but it has become a nightmare in which children betray their parents and where sexual union is regarded as a woman's duty to the party and is never experienced for love, but only for procreation. It's been found that the wasting disease known as marasmus afflicts babies who may receive the most careful physical attention in hospitals, but away from their mothers, while those in poor and unhygienic homes who have a mother's loving and tender care flourish. Mother love, in fact, is often claimed as more important than hygiene. When I was at Oxford, I remember the pioneer anthropologist Dr. Merritt describing the beauty of the relation of a mother and her child. <coughs> it is no sacrifice for the mother to suckle her child. Nay, it is the nearest thing to communion on God's earth. 
and may therefore stand as the perfect symbol of peaceful and bountiful love. Charity is no late message sent down to civilized folk from heaven. It is something that whispers in the very lifeblood of the race, as if it were the tender voice of the Earth Mother, bidding us remember that we are all her children. And in fact, I don't think our babies really are quite so bad as Freud would like us to think. And provided they're surrounded with love from the beginning, I don't see why they should be naturally naughty. It's a frustrated or neglected child who becomes a delinquent. And all of us who have children will have observed how they get together, work and play together, and rarely suffer from any kind of racial or colour prejudice. It's not the original natural tendency which makes a child desire to compete with others or show them hostility. It's too often we who condition them for this by our own behaviour. And personally, I entirely agree with the views of those psychologists who consider that love is protective as well as sexual, and a sense of security is more important to a child than feelings of sensual pleasure. Freud would have us believe that the disorders of early childhood, or those that descend to us from childhood, are due to latent incestual desires. I don't believe it. It's much more likely that they are due to a lack of security and love in infancy. In actual fact, although today, especially in the West, the family has become a little unstable and a kind of serial polygamy, as it's been called, threatens to take the place of the former lifelong bond, its value has been recognized from the earliest times in the East. I'll give one example, Confucius. To him, filial piety is the root of all virtue. He says, for teaching the people to be affectionate and loving, there is nothing better than filial piety. The services of love and reverence to parents when alive, and those of grief and sorrow to them when dead, these completely discharge the fundamental duty of living man. By this means, people are brought to live in peace and harmony. Similarly, the family has always held a central place in Indian social life, and its love relationship has been taken as a symbol of the relation of man with God. In spite of everything, the family remains a focus of loyalty, a source of happiness, and an inspiration of pure and durable affection, unparalleled among the social institutions of the world. At the same time, it must not be a prison house, and nothing can be more destructive of happiness than to continue artificially a relationship in which love is dead. Now, a disturbing feature of the modern attitude to sex is the tendency to separate it from love. For example, in the indexes of the Kinsey reports on sex in America, the word love doesn't occur at all. And on the other hand, in the index to Sorokin's encyclopedic book, The Ways and Power of Love, there are only two minor references to sex. 
Yet it is essential that these two aspects of love should be properly related, and there should be no tendency on the part of those who aspire to spiritual or universal love to regard down-to-earth human love as inferior or merely carnal. After all, it is this so-called carnal love that has inspired the sublimest poetry and some of the greatest adventures of the human spirit. In India, man-woman love has always had its proper place in the program of the good life. The pursuit of human love is one of the four aims of life in the traditional Hindu teaching and is related to the stage of the householder. Hinduism very sensibly does not regard the celibate life as the ideal for everybody and has sometimes regarded the householder's life as the best and finest of all, as it is certainly the hardest. Its discipline is an ideal preparation for ultimate retirement and devotion to things of the spirit. In many of the Upanishads, the love between man and woman is regarded as a symbol of the divine union. In the embrace of his beloved, a man forgets the whole world, everything both within and without. In the same way, he who embraces the soul knows neither within nor without. And it's been pointed out that the longing of hearts in love was taken as the most effective image to depict the yearning of the devotee to God or the seeking by the individual soul of the supreme soul, a symbolism which is at the base of a greater part of the erotic art of India. Hindu aesthetics explained the philosophy of beauty in terms of the enjoyment or perception of a state of sublime composure or blissful serenity which was a reflection, intimation, image or glimpse of the enduring bliss of the spirit which is achieved in the perfect love union of man and woman. I've referred to the conversation between Raja Ramananda and Chaitanya on the banks of the Godavari. After they had discussed the value of married love, the Raja said that rising above everything else, the highest love of all was Radha's love for Sri Krishna. This is how they put it. The love that Radha bore for Sri Krishna has no parallel in this world. Sri Krishna is pure, Radha is purity itself. And there is no dross in the love. It is love which enables Radha to sacrifice everything that man holds dear and brave even scandal for the sake of Krishna. Her happiness consists in the happiness of Krishna. She cannot live without him, yet she does not want anything from him. There's been a tremendous amount, as I needn't tell you, of thought and discussion on this subject in all parts of India. I can only dip the tip of my finger in the great ocean of Indian love knowledge. There is, for example, the profound love philosophy of the Sahajya cult of Bengal in the post-Chaitanya period, the general bhakti movement of Bengal Vaishnavism. The ideas have been described in terms acceptable to modern readers by M. M. Bose and B. P. B. C. Pal. 
by interpreting the eternal love sport of Krishna and Radha as the union of matter and energy, or the play of God with his prakriti. The bhaktas raise the dignity of love. For this leela suggests an exultant and intense feeling, a longing to lose oneself, body and spirit, without thought of self, in the object of love. The Hindus desired above all things to rise above themselves, not merely for self-improvement, but by transforming calm into prema, to be united with the all. In the same way, the Mahayana doctrine of Buddhism describes the union of the divine male and female as the Mahasuk, the great delight. And this is illustrated in the Tibetan icons, depicting the union of compassion and knowledge, or the union of the Shakti with the energy which created it. As Zimmer has said, the basic Indian doctrine, the doctrine of transcendental monism, which merges opposite principles in timeless union, finds no more striking symbolization anywhere than in the Lamasari cult of the icon of the holy bliss of the united couple. So the use of openly sexual symbols to express the highest metaphysical conceptions dignifies the act of sex and should ensure that it is not regarded as something merely sensual or animal. When we turn to Christianity and the general Western thought on the subject, we find that it's been overlaid and confused on the one hand by the violent reactions of Christian ascetics and on the other by the hypocritical outlook of many Puritans. Plato's simile of the ladder of perfection had a rather unfortunate effect, for when we climb a ladder, we leave the lower rungs behind, in the same way as, as people began to think that as we reach, climb up to the higher love, then we leave the lower love behind. But that is not true. And in the early centuries, the idea of the agape, the love of God coming to fill all men with love, must have dignified and purified the approach of the sexes to one another. And the mere fact that one of the most beautiful love poems ever written was included in the Old Testament canon does not suggest that the ancient theologians were afraid of human passion. On the other hand, the supposition that it was the sexual act that was the original sin of Adam and Eve, which you remember started all our troubles, certainly lowered the general attitude towards human love, and in more recent years, the distorted outlook of the Victorian age did much to emphasize it. And in view of this constant attempt to lower the dignity of sexual love, I'd like to read you two passages from deeply religious people, which will carry much more conviction than if I said it myself. The first is from the Catholic scholar at Oxford, the Jesuit Father Darcy. The closer one looks at the various manifestations of human love, the more one is conscious of a congruity between spiritual love and sex. These various manifestations are not haphazard. 
they disclose a sequence as unified and progressive as a symphony of music by a great master. It is as if some presiding genius of the species were watching over the expressions of love and regulating the human lottery. Sex proves to be the surest means of arousing and sustaining love. The permanence of the species is assured and at the same time the greatest variety of the individual encouraged. The vital energies allow themselves to be transformed into something spiritual. What was begun in carnality ends in heaven. What seemed to be mere animal breeding partakes of spirituality, and what appears at first to be just a bodily function acquires a value of its own above even that of knowledge. So it comes about that the vital energies can be enlisted in the service of the soul, and the highest spiritual experiences await those who are faithful to the institutes of nature. The art of loving is not in the least what the libertine tradition would have us believe. It is rather the science of making the fleeting loves of youth endure and multiply in fresh ways of experience throughout the course of a long human life. Love is no episode. It imposes itself like a divinity, regulating, inspiring, and offering the promise of an undreamed-of perfection. That is Father Darcy. And now my second quotation is from a Protestant scholar, Dr. William Cole, who wrote a book called Sex and Love in the Bible, which I think is of quite extraordinary interest and a particular appeal to sociologists. Dr. Cole's fundamental theme is that sex is good. I'm not saying this, this is a Christian clergyman. The insistence of the secular mind, he says, upon the essential goodness of sex as a fact of nature must be underlined and strengthened by a biblically oriented viewpoint rather than attacked and refuted. He's even protested against the use of the device of what Freud calls the walls of loathing, guilt and shame as means of social control. He points out that this has worked reasonably well, but a heavy price has been paid for its success, a price of sexual perversion, which is the product of fear and anxiety. The removal of anxiety-producing factors in the sexual education of children would free them to pursue the natural methods of sexual activity indicated by society and nature alike. There's a tendency, you know, among some religious people to regard passion even within the marriage bond as merely animal. We must not let our lusts, says Gandhiji, enter into marriage. But generally speaking, the danger in marriage is not that we should love too much, but that we should love too little. No love is pure that is not passionate. And this was recognized by the ancient Indian writers, as, for example, by Vatsyana in his Kama Sutra, which aimed at making love more of an art and marriage thus more successful. A hundred modern novels have accustomed us to the idea 
that there's no comparison between the condition of being in love and the love of married couples. And a man and wife who continue to be in love with each other after a number of years are held up as slightly ludicrous. This is a notion that we must combat in every way possible. Sexual love, married love, the greatest possible passion is a good and beautiful thing. It is an art, as the Hindus have always recognized. It must be regarded and practiced as an art. It has been said that the ordinary man making love is like a chimpanzee trying to play a violin. <laughs> this is one reason why unions based on imperfect or badly practiced sex techniques so often fail. Modern people would do well to learn something of the ancient techniques of love in India not has been uncharitably suggested so that they may extend their lusts outside the marriage bond, but in order to make a greater success of love, even the most passionate love, within it. So now let us turn to the wider love that goes out to embrace all mankind. An important motive of practicing love towards our fellow creatures is that we are all ultimately one. This idea, very characteristic of India, is the logical conclusion of the Upanishadic doctrine of the Atman. It is the universal soul which we love in each individual person. Life is one, for it is the expression of the unseen but ultimate reality, imminent in all things, yet transcending them. If we recognize the Atman, it must lead to love of all men. As it is sometimes put today, a man should love his neighbor as himself because he is himself. The 17th century poet Dunn, in a very famous passage, said, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Very similar ideas are found in the Buddhist scriptures, as the following passage from Santideva. A man should diligently foster the thought that his fellow creatures are the same as himself. All have the same sorrows, the same joys as I and I must guard them like myself. The body, manifold of parts in its division of members, must be preserved as a whole. And so likewise this manifold universe has its sorrow and its joy in common. I must destroy the pain of another as though it were my own, because it is a pain. I must show kindness to others, for they are creatures as I am myself. We love our hands, and the other limbs as members of the body, then why not love other living beings as members of the universe? By constant use, man comes to imagine that his body, which has no being, is a self. Why then should he not conceive his self to lie in his fellow also? Thus, in doing service to others, pride, admiration, and desire of reward find no place for thereby we satisfy the wants of our own self. 
then as thou wouldst guard against suffering and sorrow, so exercise the spirit of helpfulness and tenderness towards the world. Christmas Humphreys has put this Buddhist idea very beautifully when he says, he who realizes to the full the oneness of his life with all its other forms will find his consciousness expand proportionately, and as he understands, so will he love. Until his heartbeat is the heartbeat of the universe, his consciousness coincident with all that lives. Love has, of course, as many forms as hearts that hold it. Yet in the end must the personal give way to the impersonal, the selfish to the altruistic. For metta is not love aflame with all desire, but love at peace. And it's not only in the East, of course, that this belief is found. The Stoics also had similar ideas, though to them was the point was rather the kinship of man as part of the whole human race than his identity as part of the universal being. And Marcus Aurelius, that great man, speaks of the kinship of every man with the whole human race, a kinship not of blood and seed, but of mind. The mind of each is God and comes down from God. Whether it be a belief in a common humanity or an identity based on a deep mystical conception, this idea of the unity of mankind, which naturally extends to the unity of all living creatures, is a powerful factor in promoting the idea of universal love. Now we come to the golden rule. The golden rule gained great prominence through the teachings of Christianity, which declared, All things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do even so to them. This, however, was much older than Christianity, though it commonly appears in its negative form, Do not do to others what you would not wish them to do to you. And for most of us, in fact, the negative form is, I think, more immediately practical, for what we are most often in danger of is being unkind or angry or feeling hatred, which are all things we would not like to experience from other people. Westermark has collected many examples of this, quoting the Mahabharata, the Greek philosophers, the early Jewish writers and Christian theologians. For example, when Confucius was asked if there was any one word which might serve as a rule for all one's life, he answered, is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And when Aristotle was asked how we should behave to our friends, he said in reply, exactly as we would they should behave to us. And there is a story that when a pagan came to the famous Rabbi Hillel and said to him that he would embrace Judaism on condition that he were taught the whole doctrine during the time that he stood on one leg. The rabbi replied, What thou do, dost not like, do not do to thy neighbor. That is the whole doctrine. All the rest is only explanation. This precept is developed in the rule, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which Christianity inherited from the old Judaism. Problem here is to decide who is one's neighbor. In tribal tradition, 
while it's often regarded as extremely wrong to steal from a member of one's own clan or even tribe. It's not considered anything very bad to steal from members of another tribe or from, for example, a government official. Even in modern society, there's no doubt that preference in affection is usually given to one's own family or caste, the adherence of one own, one's own religion or members of the same race. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer to define who his neighbor was, he replied in the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. But unfortunately, that does not really define who our neighbor is. It rather shows that even a member of the scheduled classes, which is how a Samaritan would be defined today, can act in a nobler spirit than members of the higher castes. The Christian Gospels actually are not altogether free of a certain exclusiveness. Although as time has passed, the sayings which limit neighborly love to believers or the people of Israel have conveniently been forgotten. But anyway, both Jews and Christians em emphasize the importance of loving man as well as God. And the two commands which in the Old Testament occurred in different books were put together in the New. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The philosopher Kant, however, has rightly said that love as an affection cannot be commanded. And obviously we can't love people to order. In fact, it can be said that to like everybody may be little more than a sign of a weak character. It's one's neighbor whom it's really difficult to love or even to like, whether it is the person at the next table in the office or the manager of the next shop in the bazaar or the owner of a neighboring house who insists on turning up the radio too loud. It's comparatively easy to have a universal love for people we never see. It's the close contact with one's neighbors which makes love difficult. And for this reason, the Ramakrishna mission, which has been described as having been founded on the rock of love, enjoins on its members, love one another, watch yourselves, and see that your love for one another never lessens. Now I'll come to the question of forgiveness. Very difficult one. But practical, everyday life, love finds great expression in forgiveness. And this idea too, like the golden rule, is very old and almost universal. It's found in the Jewish scriptures. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge. The Talmud says that whosoever does not persecute them that persecute him, whoever takes an offense in silence, he who does good because of love, he is the friend of God. In China we find Mencius declaring <coughs> that a benevolent man does not lay up anger nor cherish resentment against his brother, but only regards him with affection and love. Similarly, the laws of Manu say that a man should not show anger against an angry man. Let him bless when he is cursed. The Quran says that paradise is for those who repress their rage and those who pardon men. God loves the kind. And Westermark refers to a proverb 
as in everyday use among the Mohammedans of India. The sandal tree perfumes the axe that fells it. In the sort of classical Greece and Rome, you also find forgiveness. In the Crito, Socrates is represented as saying that we ought not to retaliate or render evil for evil to anyone, whatever evil we may have suffered from him. Seneca urges that there's only one thing which can afford us peace, and that is to agree to forgive one another. One could go on endlessly. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often am I to forgive my brother if he goes on wronging me? As many as seven times? To which Jesus replies, I do not say seven times, I say seventy times seven. The injunction to forgive is put by the evangelists again and again on the lips of Jesus. But all his teaching is consummated in the sublime cry on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Teaching of which Bertrand Russell has said that there's nothing to be said against it, except that it is too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. In the discussions of Jesus on this subject, however, there's usually a condition. Rewards are promised. There are threats of punishment for those who fall below the ideal. If you forgive others the wrongs they have done, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then the wrongs you have done will not be forgiven you by your Father. There's a cautionary story of the two debtors, how a master forgives an enormous debt to a servant who has himself has a colleague who owes him a few pounds. And the servant has his friend thrown into jail because he doesn't pay. And this concludes with the remarkable words that so angry was the master that he condemned the man to torture until he could pay the debt in full. And that is how my heavenly father will deal with you unless you each forgive your brother from your hearts. The desire for revenge, however, as Spinoza recognizes when he says that hatred is increased by being reciprocated, is a weakening and destructive passion. It's essentially contrary to law, which tries to regard the most heinous of crimes in a dispassionate manner. On the man who himself suffers from the desire to retaliate, it has the worst possible effect. It narrows him, weakens him, and destroys his happiness. To forgive, therefore, not only results in happiness and peace between individuals, but brings peace to a man's own heart. Tolstoy's quarrel with Turgenev lasted for 17 years, but when he began to awake to the religion of love, he remembered his old friend and wrote to him in Paris and said, Sincerely, if you can forgive me, I offer you all the friendship of which I am capable. At our time of life, there is only one good, loving relations with people and I will be very happy if they exist between us. But much more dramatic and important was the part played by Tolstoy after the assassination of the Tsar Alexander II in 1881 by a group of terrorists. Six of them were arrested and condemned to death, and this had a very deep effect on Tolstoy. He dreamt that he saw himself acting in place of the official executioner. 
he immediately wrote a letter to the new Tsar in which he implored him to forgive his father's murderers and thus return good for evil. Tolstoy pointed out that for the past 20 years revolutionary organizations had been trying to overthrow the state. To combat them, government had employed two methods. Liberal measures to appease the opposition and the most savage methods of repression. Both had completely failed. Tolstoy urged that a third method of forgiveness should be tried. The Tsar should leave the dark path of state necessity justifying everything and instead should forgive. If he would do this, said Tolstoy, the hearts of thousands of millions will throb with joy and tenderness at this example of goodness shown from the throne, at a moment so terrible for the son of a murdered father. And goodness and love would pour forth like a flood over Russia. There's only one ideal that could be opposed to the murderers, the ideal of love of forgiveness and the returning good for evil. This appeal was far ahead of its time. I'm ahead, I'm afraid, of our time also. Though what might have happened in the subsequent history of Russia if Tolstoy had, had his way, nobody can tell. The Tsar commanded that Tolstoy should be informed that if an attempt had been made on his own life, he could have pardoned it, but he didn't have the right to pardon the murderers of his father. <coughs> I'll just give one more example of this forgiveness out of what could be hundreds. Let us go forward 20 years and across the world to India to find Swami Vivekananda at Kish uh, Bhavani, turning to love of so overmastering a kind that he believed that even his worst enemies could not resist it. Sister Nivedita has given a vivid example of his teaching at this time. It was as if, she said, no blow to any in the world could pass and leave our master's heart untouched, as if no pain, even to that of death, could elicit anything but love and blessing. He told us the story of Vashishtan and Vishwamitra, of a sister's hundred descendants slain, and the sage left alone, landless and helpless, to live out his life. Then he pictured the hut standing in the moonlight among the trees, and the sage and his wife within. He is poring intently over some precious page written by his great rival, when she draws near and hangs over him for a moment, saying, Look, how bright is the moon tonight. And he, without looking up, says, But ten thousand times brighter, my love, is the intellect of Vishwamitra. All forgotten, the death of his hundred children, his own wrongs and his sufferings, and his heart lost in admiration of the genius of his foe. Such, said the Swami, should be our love also, without the slightest tinge of personal memory. As the Naga leader, Dr. Nkomlibaau, lay dying, he begged that though the law would have to follow its course, no revenge should be taken on his assassin. So if forgiveness is to be regarded as an aspect of love, it's obvious that it must be unconditional. 
If we forgive others as a result of some kind of threat or fear that we will only be forgiven ourselves if we forgive our neighbor or if we forgive others because our reward will be great in heaven, we may be acting very sensibly but not according to any philosophy of love. Similarly, a feeling of superiority that revenge is below us is not love. That was the point of the great Stoics, who said that um, they insisted on the value of forgiveness and the evils of bad temper and anger. But there's a suggestion in their teachings that we should take this attitude because rage is the mark of an unmanly disposition. Mildness and good temper are not only more human, but more masculine also. This was the view, too, of Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca suggests that the most contemptuous form of revenge is not to regard your adversary as worthy of your vengeance. In actual practice, of course, this is a useful psychological trick by which you can persuade yourself not to be angry with someone who offends you. He's just not worth disturbing your blood pressure for. <laughs> but we can hardly regard this as the expression of affection. Unconditional, selfless forgiveness, however, is the very breath and essence of love. And now compassion, another element of love. One of the finest aspects of altruistic love is compassion, a rare and difficult virtue which is not to be confused with pity. There's nothing patronizing about it. It's not the feeling of a superior for an inferior. It springs from that sense of identity with other beings, which we've already discussed, and is an essential aspect of Gandhiji's belief in the God of the poor, Daridra Narayan. Krishna says in the Mahabharat, know that Dharma is my beloved son whose nature is to have compassion on all creatures. In Buddhism, compassion, karuna, is one of the four Brahma Viharas. For the Buddhist, compassion is the basis of morality. For we feel with and for each other because we are really one with each other. In the valuation of deeds, compassion is the touchstone which divides them into good and evil. It is no local, temporary human code. It is the voice of the cosmos heard in the air. Again and again, the Buddhist scriptures stress the happiness that comes from compassion. His soul is happy with boundless compassion, and he shall be filled with boundless joy. And its greatest moment is when the Bodhisattva refused to enter Nirvana so long as a single human being remained fettered by his earthly chains. Jesus showing compassion on the blind, the sorrowful, the adulterous. Gandhiji by the bedside of the sick. Gauranga or St. Francis of Assisi embracing the lepers. The Bodhisattva denying himself the ultimate bliss out of love for all mankind. Ram Krishna saying, let me condemn to be born over and over again, even in the form of a dog, if I can be of help to a single soul. These are historic types of compassion, 
which have excited imitation down the centuries. We're accustomed to think of love as the highest bliss possible to human beings. Spinoza associated it with happiness and even cheerfulness. And in the Hindu tradition, love and joy, the supreme leela or bliss of creation, are commonly associated. But there's another side of love, which is sorrow and torment. It's curious to note that human love, this business of being in love was regarded in medieval Europe as a malady. Galen refers to love as a disease, and other medical writers of the Middle Ages used to classify love along with such disorders as melancholy and hydrophobia. <laughs> Burton, the great authority on melancholy, declares that they that are in love are likewise sick. And other writers have said, that love is the greatest misery of all, and that if it is thwarted, it so dries the humours that the whole frame of temperature, especially that of the brain, is overthrown and marred. And Burton says again, lovers are very slaves, drudges for the time, madmen, fools, dizzards, besides themselves and as blind as beetles. <laughs> But there's another aspect of the sorrow of love. It is more serious, rising from a man's love of other, of other people generally or of mankind. The medieval mystic Lady Julian of Norwich prayed for three wounds, and one of these was the wound of compassion. We must note that it's called a wound, something that tears and rends the soul. The cross, rather than the lotus of joy, is the appropriate symbol of the lover of mankind. We may see this in Gandhiji, who in so many ways symbolized and expressed the feeling of India. Of the general and diffuse sufferings of his people, he was the natural focus, and all the sorrows of his country met in his great heart. He was a man of extreme and delicate sensitiveness, capable of that intense feeling which is the ennobling difference between one man and another. When he nursed the Zulus and tended the wheels on their backs caused by lashing, he was filled with a sense of the tragedy of all life. In his struggle against injustice in South Africa, again it was the wound of love that he experienced. Later in India, he described how the famine-stricken skeletons of men and women in Orissa haunted him in his waking hours and in his dreams. The burden of communal division pressed upon him. Shortly before his great fast in 1924, he gave his friends a glimpse of what he felt. I was violently shaken by the riots. I was writhing in deep pain, and yet I had no memory. Remedy. The news of Kohat sent, set the smouldering mass aflame. I spent two nights in restlessness and pain. Then he found the remedy. I must do penance, he says. My penance is the prayer of a bleeding heart for forgiveness for sins unwittingly committed. And here is the true spiritual triumph, not to be indifferent to pain or run away from it, 
but to accept it and transform it into an ally. For Gandhiji, fasting was not a threat, it was an act of love. The urge to penance, the sense of responsibility for the sins of others, expressed in compassion, ennobles suffering and makes of it a love weapon capable of converting the most stony heart. And finally, among these elements of love, we have humility. Love is both humble itself and humility is a necessary setting and condition of its flowering. Love, says Gandhiji, is the strongest force the world possesses and yet it is the humblest imaginable. The spirit of non-violence, he says again, necessarily leads to humility. We must act even as the mango tree, which droops as it bears fruit. Its grandeur lies in its majestic loneliness. Humility is the meek sister of Ahimsa, for humility is always reverent, quiet, restrained and loving. And we can understand the importance of humility to genuine love if we consider its opposites, vanity and pride. These inevitably harden a man, robbing him of the tenderness that is essential for love. They turn a man in on himself so that he judges everything by the effect it may have on his own career, his own happiness and the fulfillment of his own ambition. They effectively bar that outgoing of the self towards others, which we have defined as a fundamental aspect of love. The true lover is always humble, whether it is in the face of an individual of whose affection he doesn't feel worthy, or of all mankind and the stupendous claims that it makes upon him. Humility, therefore, though it is not love and doesn't always lead to it, is its essential basis and condition. Dostoevsky, faced by the problem how to overcome the evil in man, came to the conclusion that the only way was to fight it by humble love. Loving humility is the most effective force, the most terrific, the most powerful, unequal by any other force in the world.